We find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 16 this morning. So if you want to start heading towards 1 Corinthians 16, that's where we'll be. We're in our last, we're really on the descent. Uh, the landing gear is down on this book, and we're about ready to close it up uh, next week. So 1 Corinthians 16 is where we'll be this morning. I don't know if you're this type of person, but if you've ever received a lengthy amount of instructions, it's tempting to zone out at the end, isn't it? Like, it's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. Like, I've, I've heard the training, let's get to it. And uh, we know disasters can happen, right, if we fail to follow final instructions. I'm sure you have stories in your own house or your own life where there's been a time where you missed that last little detail at the end and that recipe didn't turn out right, or that event didn't turn out right, or you thought it was, um, you know, a certain date, and you showed up at someone's door, and it was the wrong time, right? Right time, maybe wrong day, or something like that. I'll never forget a time that I was in charge of booking two campsites, actually one campsite, two nights, um, some time ago with some good friends that I used to work with, and a certain phrase came out of this because of how I responded to the situation. And we get all the way up to Yosemite. And campsites, I don't know if you know this, but campsites are really hard to find at Yosemite. Or you just got to be right there at 7 a.m. Ask Kara about this if you need any tips on how to get, uh, how to get campsites. But you got to be there five months early, ready to click, beat out everybody else. Well, I did that. I did that. And we were supposed to go midweek, Tuesday and Wednesday. And, well, five months later, we hit the road um, for, I'm sorry, there was supposed to be Monday and Tuesday. We hit the road on Tuesday. So we get up there, and they're like, yeah, what's your name? I'm like, Hewlett? Yeah, um, sorry, we gave your campsites away. I'm like, what? Like, we're, we have the reservation. They're like, yeah, but if you don't show up, <laughs> if you don't show up on the day you're supposed to check in, we give them away, first come, first serve. I'm like, are you kidding me? And I said this phrase, you, you've heard this phrase before. I was like, well, you win some, you lose some. And the car was like, win some, lose some. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, we came six hours to go camping. We've been waiting for this for a year. Win some, lose some. That's like when they're out of pepperoni and you have to have sausage on your pizza or something. And so that phrase, I can't ever live it down. And um, so I'm known as the win some, lose some guy in that group. So following final instructions or paying attention to the details, it counts in the silly things and the not so important things. But especially as we come here this morning to 1 Corinthians 16, Apostle Paul is finishing up his commands. And they're not throwaway commands in his, in his final words to the Corinthians. They're actually very important and so far, we know that in the book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul address many of their concerns, right? There's that little phrase in the book of 1 Corinthians, now concerning, that happens multiple times, now concerning gifts, now concerning, you know, whatever the topic might be, Paul answers their questions. He's also confronted many of their behaviors, Many of their, their sinful behaviors, he's confronted that in the book. Even without them asking a question, he's going to answer, this is how you have to conduct yourself as God's children. 
Um, he's shown them how to use their gifts and why we should use our gifts, right? 1 Corinthians 13 falls right in the middle of using our gifts for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. And for, for sure, we just listened to a series in 1 Corinthians 15 on the hope of the resurrection. They're their theology of the resurrection was off, and it, it makes sense that they were living in certain ways because that chief theology of the resurrection was not so important to them. So the way that they lived in their physical bodies was affected by their theology of what they thought of the resurrection. If we could like just look at the book of 1 Corinthians, and maybe we could steal a little bit of knowledge from the book of 2 Corinthians we have a little bit of a composite about the church of Corinth, don't we? We, we kind of know what they were struggling with, what kind of questions they had, where they were off theologically, or where they were off methodologically or in their behavior. And you could, you could describe them like this. It's not, it's not a pretty picture, but you could say they were selfish. They were a, a selfish church, at least in part. We don't know if this was 100% of the, the membership or if it was just a faction, but they were, they were concerned about themselves first, primarily. They were, they were selfish. They were also, this, this is easy to see, because they're selfish, this led to factionalism. They, they were a, like a church full of factions. Remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, oh, I'm of Peter, oh wait, I'm of Christ. That whole thing of pulling away from the unity of the body was rooted in the selfishness. They're also earthly-minded. They are an earthly-minded church. They struggled to look beyond their circumstances or beyond what the immediate called for and into, really, eternity, eternity with Christ. They were an earthly-minded church, and their behavior, because of this earthly-mindedness, their behavior was wreaking havoc inside the church, and it was a poor testimony for those outside. So, so far, it's, it's not looking too good. I think it gets worse. They are also an arrogant church, and, and I think we're going to see some of this in the commands this morning. They, they thought they had it all together when there was these gaping holes of sanctification in the church body. Remember, they esteemed knowledge and just knowing and, and all this sophisticated uh, wisdom, but they saw themselves as having perhaps arrived but they were not, certainly not there. And, and we, we could say we all never really will be until heaven. So they failed to be teachable. And also, I think they were imbalanced. They were, they were an imbalanced church. They, they tended to exalt these things that weren't necessarily wrong, like wisdom and gifts, the higher gifts. But they did that to the extent of, of really lowering service and faithfulness and being about, uh, in, a, in a good way, what's in, how to serve what's in front of you, not grasp and grapple for what is beyond reach or perhaps what God hasn't given you in the moment. So they were, in a sense, maybe an imbalanced or impatient church that wanted things on their time frame and things weren't meeting their expectations. So knowing this characterization of the church, there's, there's highlights as well, but for the most part, this letter is a very corrective letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, but let's look at 1 Corinthians 16, and we're going to start in verse 5, even though our text this morning really begins in verse 10. 
We're going to pick it up in 16.5 to understand really what it is that Paul instructs here. We want to look into the why of it as well. 16.5, it says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning, there's our phrase, our last one here. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people." Interesting closing, huh? He's got to end the letter somewhere. And Paul, you have to ask yourself, why does he give all these travel instructions? Not travel instructions, but kind of for your information, uh, just why is it here? It's like these little FYIs about Timothy and Apollos and Stephanus and himself, actually. Why all the travel plans and, and the heads up as to what... Uh, he and other ministers of the gospel are doing. And you have to ask yourself, and when he talks about certain people, why those people, and why does he instruct the way he does regarding those people? But you have to remember that Paul absolutely loved this group of believers. Paul loved this church. He began this church a few years ago, and it wasn't because he was admonishing them and trying to grind them down with some kind of words he said. Everything he writes is for their upbuilding. He says that in 2 Corinthians. He's like, this is why I write to you. This is why I am interested in pursuing you with these letters and with my presence because Paul absolutely loves them and he really wants their best. He's not in it to just chide them but there are some that you can already see. If we were to jump to 2 Corinthians, we know that there's some in this congregation that are stirring up animosity against Paul. And the way they're doing that is saying, he doesn't even want to come see you. That's how unimportant you are to Paul. Or that is, you know, Paul, Paul, Paul's got big words when he's not with us, but 
He's weak when he's amongst us. That's an accusation that you see in 2 Corinthians. So Paul doesn't know those things are going to be said about him yet, but this is some of the attitudes that are stirring up, and this is how God will attack, or not God, God, Satan will attack God's people is by casting doubt against an apostle like Paul to get them to diminish his apostolic authority or his love for them. Because once you tear Paul down, do you really have to listen to the letters that he sent? Absolutely not. You can disregard the words that he's written by the Holy Spirit if you tear down Paul himself. So these doubts are beginning to arise and stir amongst those who would resist Paul. So he gives these instructions here in 10 through 18 as we get really close to closing the letter. And we're going, he actually gives 10 commands, 10 imperatives in nine short verses. And we're going to tuck these into four headings this morning, really based on how they come in these paragraphs. So first of all, it's this. Regarding Timothy, regarding Timothy, Paul's representative, treat him well. That's the imperative in verses 10 and 11. Treat Timothy well. Well, now they know Timothy. The Corinthians do know Timothy. We know that from Acts chapter 18, that Timothy came after Paul was already ministering to the Corinthians. They, they know this young man, this young minister in the gospel. And they, but look at what he says about Timothy. He says, see that you put him at ease. Notice the three imperatives here about Timothy. Put him at ease for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. In other words, instead of despising, you should honor him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. So there's your three imperatives that you're to put him at ease. You're to not despise, so a negative command, but you're also to help, keep, keep, help, help Timothy keep moving. Help Timothy get back to me after Timothy visits you. And you think about what's, what's going on here, why, why the commands of how to treat Timothy and, and why. Before we get into that, I want you to turn to Philippians, actually. Will you keep your finger in the book of 1 Corinthians and turn over to Philippians? This is why Paul would send a Timothy to this church in Corinth. They've already, they already know this young man. And young, meaning probably, this is really a guesstimate, it's probably somewhere between 25 and 45. So younger, but um, probably not incredibly young. But go to Philippians chapter 2. As you hear Paul talk of Timothy, look at verse 19. Now, obviously, writing to a different church, but it still gives us a real good window into Timothy's character. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. That's how it worked. So, right? We don't have FaceTime. We have word of mouth. So they go back and forth, and Paul wants an update of how the Philippian church is doing. And then Timothy can be the messenger that says how Paul is doing to them. Verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. What a statement. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I 
sorry, as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. You can turn back to 1 Corinthians. So see, you can see Timothy's character that Paul's sending him as a representative, as, as a minister of the gospel who's going to minister in a way that Paul can like double stamp. He can he can say with all of his heart, this is the guy you want to come and minister to you during this season. Now, why is this an important note? Because he's about ready to tell, he's already told him them, I can't come. I'm at least delayed until Pentecost. And the reason I don't want to come now is because I'm, I'm on my way. And I don't want to just kind of like give you a high five and keep going through town. I actually want to spend some really good time with you all. Then he's about ready to tell them, he just tells them about Timothy. He's about ready to tell them about Apollos. So in between Paul not able to come and Apollos not able to come, he says, here's who I am sending. And I, I think it's not too much of a stretch to think that the Corinthians are being like, seriously? <laughs> like we get Timothy? We get Timothy? We don't get you, Paul. We don't get Apollos. Those are the things we, those are the, their gifts are the things we value. They're, they're the ones we've esteemed before and have been built up on, and we have a young Timothy coming, and that's why he's saying, put him at ease. Don't, don't be hard on Timothy, and instead of despising him, it could be for his youth. It could just be because he's not Paul, or it could be because he's not Apollos. We'll get to that in a second, but either way, the, the Corinthians are going to have to accept Paul's decision-making in this manner. But notice that they're to put him at ease. Why? End of verse 10. Look at the end, the end of verse 10. It's not because of like his age or it's Paul or Apollos or Timothy. It's because he's doing the work of the Lord just as Paul is. That is why they're to help him along his way, to encourage him, to put him at ease when he gets there. But second of all, look at the next thing concerning Apollos. So with Timothy, treat him well. Concerning Apollos in verses 12, just, just verse 12, we see that they need to be understanding of Apollos. They need to be understanding and wait on the Lord while Apollos is absent as well. Look at verse 12. It says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him. So Paul is pleading with Apollos to help this church in Corinth that he knows is struggling. He's like, Apollos, you got to go. you got to go see these people. This, this is, it's got to be top priority for you. Who knows what the conversation looked like, but you can see the emphasis there right in the English. I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. So the other brothers who would be coming and delivering this letter most likely. But look how strong this language is. But it was not at all his will. Now, if it ended there, <laughs> the Corinthians would be probably rattled of like, what is going on with Apollos? I thought he was like our guy. I, I mean, he helped us help build this church. Well, he quickly says, he, it's not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, obviously, Apollos was engaged in other ministries, probably in Ephesus there with Paul, they had to have some kind of conversation about this, so it was likely that Paul, writing from Ephesus, is talking to Apollos about these things. And Apollos is like, look, 
I would love to go, but I can't. It's, it's, it's not going to happen right now. Kind of like Paul. Paul's saying, I can't come right now. Apollos is saying, I want to go, but I can't come right now either. And I think Paul can look just, you know, at the landscape of the Corinthian church and be like, they're, they're going to struggle with this. They're going to struggle with Paul not, myself not coming and Apollos not coming. Remember who Apollos was? Remember from Acts chapter 18 or maybe the beginning of 1 Corinthians? He was eloquent. He was powerful in speech. He refuted the arguments of the Jews um, in, the, in the sense of like he was able to prove from the Old Testament that Jesus was the expected Messiah. That's how Paul, sorry, that's how Apollos really helped the Corinthian church was understanding their Old Testament scriptures to be like, it is Jesus. And Apollos, it says, was well-versed in the scriptures. He was an eloquent man, and he really helped, he really helped this church grow. But this says something about Paul and Apollos. It says that Paul isn't concerned, well, he's concerned, but he's not concerned to involve himself in the factions that the Corinthians have really in existence in their congregation. Paul's not jealous of Apollos. There's nothing between Paul and Apollos. Paul wants Apollos to go and exercise his gifts so that this young church can be built up. He's, he's not paying attention to their petty factions. It also says that Apollos is willing, but he's on his own time frame as well according to what the Lord's will is for him. And so the Corinthians will have to wait and deal. They'll, they will be okay, is what this communicates. But it really shows that Paul has their best interest in mind because he wants, he's urging Apollos to go so strongly. It also shows the Corinthians that it's like, I'm not the one holding Apollos back. Apollos is a big, big kid. He can make these decisions himself, and he has. So you have to deal with the, the waiting, is what Paul is implicitly saying. So that's concerning two ministers of the gospel. But thirdly, there's really an abrupt change in what Paul begins to write next. So he stops talking about himself and Timothy and Apollos, and we shift now to this final charge, which was not uncommon to Pauline literature. Paul says this to Timothy a couple of times, both in First and Second Timothy. He says things like this to Titus. He says things like this to the Thessalonian church. That as he's wrapping up, he'll go into these brief little staccato, like, do this, act like this, be about this, just, just rapid fire. And you could see a good example of that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 um, or 2 Timothy 4. He actually uses the word, I charge you in the presence of God and these witnesses. So he'll go, after he's wrapped up really the body of his letter, he'll go into these charges, and that's what we have here in verse 13, which is really the meat of this, these final instructions. Look at what he says here. It's really a mouthful for two verses. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. He's talking about himself, Timothy, Apollos, and then boom, right here to be watchful. Why does he start with be watchful? 
I, I think it's because the Corinthians have a tendency to lean toward things that are of importance but not first importance. I think it's a, it's a congregation that you see because of the, the content of this letter to lean toward things that are, yes, they're a part of the church and they're a part of God's kingdom, but sometimes even those good things can be put to a level to your own detriment that you're not watchful on what is most important. Now, the, the term, be watchful, all of these, these first four, really all of verse 13, look at those commands again. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What does that kind of sound like? Can you think of imagery that would come to your mind? What this is, is pre-battle pep talk. Pep talk weakens it, but <laughs> this is pre-war pre-war communication from a commander to his soldiers. Not to say that, that, that Paul is the, the general and he just fires orders, but he is talking to them like, look, you got to be watchful. That's a military term. Instead of staying, uh, you know, just kind of at your post, but checking out or maybe zoning out and <clears throat> not paying attention to the attacks that could come, it's that laziness of mind, not necessarily falling asleep. Of course, that would be the wrong thing to do if you are actually a watchman in war. But since we're talking about spiritual warfare, it's not too much of a stretch to say zoning out here, <clears throat> to spiritually stay alert, to be, as Peter might say it, to be sober-minded. That's what Paul is saying here, to be watchful, to be concerned that there is an enemy. There's an enemy that is directly against, not just kind of sort of against you, it's 180 degrees opposing the efforts of the gospel in every town that it goes into. Uh, the, that command, be watchful in the New Testament, often refers to the coming of Christ. Watch for the coming of Christ. And we just came off of that, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, that we're talking about the resurrection that obviously has implications of Christ's return because he's alive, he's not in the grave. But it also is referred to as being watchful for each other, being watchful for temptation, being watchful for, I think you'll see this a lot, and I think this could be an emphasis here in 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful for false teachers. Be on your guard against attacks of the enemy that come through false teaching. So first of all, he, he tells these Corinthians to be watchful. Second of all, in 16.13, he says, stand firm in the faith. You can see all of these kind of go together. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Stand firm in the faith. Not in your faith, but like in your faith in the gospel which sometimes is incredibly strengthened and is strong, and sometimes we doubt and that's weakened. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about stand firm on the truth of the gospel, in the faith, on the faith. Don't be shifted away from that. And if there's one attack that comes over and over and over again to the Christian, it is that we would just compromise on the smallest thing of the truth. It's not the whole truth. 
It's not the big essentials. It's just compromise on a piece of it. Shave off that sharp edge because that sharp edge in the society we live in and the spirit of the age that's out there, it just cuts a little hard. So just you can be faithful to the gospel if you just forget about that edge and you emphasize this over here and act like that doesn't even exist or is part of the faith. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you have to stand strong on what you're already rooted in, and that is the truth of the gospel. That is the faith. And that faith does not change. My subjective faith in the belief in the gospel can hit ups and downs, right? We can go up and down in our faith. But to doubt the faith, that's when we will certainly crumble right after. Look at what, how Jesus would say it in, in John chapter 16. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If the world hates you, he's just saying, it, and it will happen. He's telling the disciples in John, in John 16, this is the upper room discourse. He's like, if that's taking place, you actually should be comforted not that the persecution is fun, not that the hatred of the world is enjoyable, but that it connects you to a Christ. It connects you to Jesus who suffered those very same things before you even thought about it, before you were even a thought. Jesus suffered these things. So Jesus is drawing the connection between his disciples and himself. And this is why we're to stand firm in the faith, because we should expect a battle. We shouldn't expect comfort from the world. We shouldn't expect agreement everywhere. We should expect pushback. We should expect to be hated. It is in what that one song said, it's an old-time religion. Remember that, that song? And it's good enough for me. Well, old-time religion, doesn't that sound really just outdated? Like, like just anything old Sounds like we should move away from it. Anything that has been for thousands of years sounds like, oh, it's time to think more like a modern person and, and move away from that, to shift away from our hope in the gospel. Those attacks come, I believe, daily to God's people. Second of all, or third of all, I, say, I should say, verse 13, he says, act like men. And that next phrase, be strong, really go together. And this is interesting. He says, act like men. But again, think we're in, we're in a pre-war situation. This is Old Testament lingo for brace yourself for the battle. That's what this is. And this is all people. Act like men when it comes to standing on the faith and bracing yourself for the battle. Of course, passages like this could be complete, completely misconstrued. Um, but it simply means that we're to mature and brace ourselves for an enemy that's coming and that rather than being tempted to run. You can see this in, um, you can see this in a couple of pre-war speeches, one from King Saul actually in, in 1 Samuel and another one by Joab in 2 Samuel. He tells his army, hey, like focus this is how we're going to this how this is the war strategy and he says remember to act like men. So I think Paul is grabbing an old testament phrase and saying in this battle 
You have to be strong and act like men. Remember, we don't have tanks here. We have physical male bodies fighting hand-to-hand combat in everything you do. Even at this time that the New Testament was written, you have the Roman army who is made up of male soldiers who's fighting in hand-to-hand combat. So he's saying, brace yourself. I want to read just something, one other verse from Philippians 2, chapter 12. Don't worry about turning there. But he says this to the Philippians. It's a concern of Paul in all of his churches that they would obey regardless of who's around. Timothy, Apollos, himself. And that's why you get this message here, be strong, act like man, stand firm in the faith. He says this to the the Philippians in 2 verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice that his appeal is to say, he says, now that you've already obeyed, not only in my presence, But why does he say much more in my absence? I think that's the theme going on here in the the Corinthian church or in the Corinthian letter, is that Paul's desire is that the churches that he plants would be able to stand against an enemy coming at them, often to break down the truth or the faith. And his concern is that they would obey, not because he's around, Parents, you vibe with this? You know what I'm talking about? You want the obedience of your children when? Just when you're in the room? Or if you've already raised them, do you want their obedience just when you come into their house? Do you want them to love the Lord sometimes? No, you want them, you want that, that's why he says with fear and trembling, because that fear of the Lord, that presence upon someone's conscience is what really dictates the right and wrong in the moment, not if dad or grandpa walks into the room, not if anybody else walks into the room, not if Apollos is present in Corinth. I'm going to get my act together because Apollos is in town, and we're going to, like, we're going to hang out, and we're going to get things done, and me and Apollos, like, we're cool. I, like, I love Apollos. Apollos is my boy. Like, that's, that's, Paul's like, eh, That's not what it's about. It's not about a Christian celebrityism that celebrates when Paul is in town or Apollos or, okay, okay, we'll do Timothy. We'll do Timothy. He's saying, I want you to stand strong in the faith, to act like men, to be ready for battle all the time. Obey all the time. Be strong. That's why this command is right there after it. To be strong. It really just continues the theme of gearing up for a battle when this person that you really want to be in the battle with you, like your commanding officer, is actually not there in that battle. He's engaged somewhere else on the front lines. That's what Paul is is saying here. And that, that can make us quiver at times when that commanding officer is not around. I think the Corinthians were struggling with this. But then look at what he conditions the whole thing with at the very end of this charge in verse 14. Lest you think that it's all about like, yeah, like let's be manly. And let, like sometimes I've heard this verse preached and I'm like, 
ah, I, don't, I don't think it's about lifted trucks and, you know, like just whatever you think is a manly thing to do, like go, I don't know, do one of those races where you run for like 24 hours, um, like 100 miles. I think certain people do these things. It's, that's not what this is a call to do. That's not what this is a call to do. And just to make sure, he conditions it with this last phrase. Let all that you do be done in what? In love. Let all that you do be done in love. And I think even as, as a male, obviously I can't speak for the females here, but if you think it's about like, yes, like that grit, sometimes that surges you right past an actual loving, engaging opportunity. You forget that, yes, there, it's about being strong and there's, there's strength to that. We want to be firmly rooted in the gospel, but it's not about being a tough guy. It's, it's, it's having all of that, all of that strength conditioned and wrapped in love. The way he would say it to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 14, is that put on love, which wraps everything up together in harmony. That's how he commanded the, the Colossians in, in that chapter full of imperatives. He, he highlights, he emphasizes that love, if you don't get anything Paul is saying, is make sure you love each other. Because love will protect you. Love, love of the saints toward one another will keep you in the faith. That'll help you be strong. So he conditions the command that, that everything they do must be done in love. We don't have time to look at it, but of course, this is the theme. I've already mentioned it, 1 Corinthians, what? 13. Remember, it's not just about exercising your gift and stomping on someone else to make sure you can do that and your gift is highlighted more than them. No, it's about... Whatever your gift is, Paul is saying in chapter 12 and chapter 14, that all connects in what is love. And, this, and he explains what love is, remember? And he said, if you're exercising your gift and it's not in love, you are the very first part of 1 Corinthians 13. You're a clanging gong. You're a noisy cymbal. It's like, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's sound, it's sound, but I, like, I, I can't take it. Like, I can't. I can't take that clanging cymbal in my ear. And this is what Paul is reminding them. Even when you're strong in the faith, we're to have everything we do be done in love. Lastly, the fourth heading you could see here is 15 through 18. Let's look at that together. He says, Now I urge you, brothers... <clears throat> You know, he appeals to their knowledge here, their firsthand eyewitness. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first conference in Achaia, converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So he's just kind of given, hey, that's their reputation, that's their credentials. They, as in the household of Stephanus and himself. So what are we to do with that? Verse 16, be subject to such as these. And he broadens it out here to every fellow worker and laborer. Verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. He's saying that it's most likely that those three, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, brought him the letter of questions 
that Paul is responding to. It's very likely that these three are the deliverers or the, the messengers. And he said, they've made up for your absence. So Paul is richly encouraged by the, just the, the brother-to-brother time that he's getting right now in, in Ephesus, writing back to the, the Corinthians because of these three uh, that they've sent. Uh, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. So give recognition to such people. So what's the command? What's really going on here? It's to recognize and submit to proven servants is what Paul is saying. And again, I think you can follow the flow here. Paul's not going to make it in, on their time frame. Um, he's sending Timothy instead. Apollos isn't going to make it on your time frame, and he's not going to meet your expectations. You're to stand strong. And now, hey, I want you to pay attention to actually who is in front of you, who's lived the life. It's not a Timothy. Timothy has not lived a faithful life before them. He has lived a faithful life, just not the first Corinthians. The Corinthians are not a witness to that. So Paul grabs an example that's right there, and I think a very humble example of who the Corinthians are to follow and who they are in a sense. I don't think he's saying put them on a pedestal, but if you're going to aim at any kind of modeling after someone who's, who really gets the service of Christ, he's saying it's Stephanus. It's Stephanus and his family. Why? Because he says, look at back at the second half of 15. This is something they know. So he's not trying to prove anything to them. They just, they can recall that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Notice that word devoted. They haven't just served them once or twice or a little bit. They've devoted, ever since they became believers, he's saying, they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. That's why you should be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker. Then he talks about how excited he is to see those three, but then go down at the end of verse 18 and he wraps it all up with give recognition to such people or honor such people. That's the command here at last to about Stephanus. So what's the point? What's the point? Why does he, right before his final greeting, why does he end with Stephanus? Because Stephanus was right in front of him. Stephanus was living and his family, his whole household, it says, was living a lifestyle that Paul could say, hey, that family, that guy, you, you need to submit to that kind of leadership to a proven servant. And rather than perhaps overemphasizing apostles who weren't in town, perhaps overemphasizing speech and knowledge and wisdom gifts, he's saying to the Corinthians, I think what John, John says in chapter 13, what actually Christ says to his disciples. After he washed their feet, he says, I've given you an example that you are to what? Wash one another's feet. I think that's what Paul is emphasizing here is we're Corinthians. I think we need to shift from exalting apostles who actually aren't even, they're not even among you. And it's making you a little crazy and a little factious, wanting their return 
and you're, you're dropping their name, and that's pulling the church apart. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But they need to shift from this celebrityism, if you will, a Christian celebrityism, to saying you need to just pursue the simple things and the people right around you, just like Stephanus has done. <clears throat> Stephanus and his family has done. Washing the disciples' feet or washing the, the feet of the saints since he first became a believer. So let me just give you this in a little bit of an application. So what happens if the Corinthians don't obey this? You ever ask yourself that? What happens if I just blow off Paul's commands here? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to pay attention to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians 16. I think what happens is they would impede ministers of the gospel, right? That's, that's pretty big. They would also despise Paul and Apollos, like think down on Paul and Apollos for not coming to them to meet their expectations. How are they going? What's that next interaction going to be like if the Corinthians are thinking poorly of Paul and Apollos while they're away? When they do finally come, what could potentially happen? You're with me, right? Yeah. They're going to resist that next opportunity that Paul and Apollos have to minister to them. So in following the instructions of thinking rightly about those ministers of the gospel, the Corinthians are setting themselves up to have receptive hearts when Paul finally makes it to town. Now, we do know from 2 Corinthians that unfortunately there's a faction that keeps stirring those things up. Although all in all, there's massive improvement in the Corinthian church. I also think there's a danger to the Corinthians themselves. If they don't pay attention, if they don't watch out, if they don't act like men and be strong in this spiritual warfare, they endanger themselves because they're paying attention to things that are even perhaps not wrong, but certainly not primary. So they endanger themselves. And lastly, they miss an opportunity to really just follow the laborers of the gospel that are amongst them. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that, that phrase. I think that was perhaps Stephanus' situation, where he'd been there the whole time, and they're like, ah, yeah, Stephanus. But Paul is saying, no, 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 really, like this guy and his family, um, this is who you want to pursue. This is who you want to model. So to finalize, <clears throat> to final instructions, I think Paul is saying, to, let's detach ourselves from overly exalting, um, you know, these apostles that aren't in town. Boldly stand firm in the faith, humbly be on guard, and be subject, be subject to faithful servants of the gospel. But don't forget this. Don't forget this. Do everything. Do everything in love. If the Corinthians can hang on to that, they're going to be set up for success when he comes. I want to end with a, a hymn that, or end my conclusion, I should say, with a hymn here on the screen that is from Charles Wesley. It's the words of Charles Wesley. It's called, A Charge to Keep I Have. And it, I'll just read it with you. There's, there's four verses here. I think of this charge to the Corinthians, Charles Wesley writes this prayer really for himself and others. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, 
who gave his son my soul to save and fit it for the sky, to serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live. And now thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. You can almost hear the 1 Corinthians 16 in this. Help me to watch and pray and still on thee rely. Oh, let me not my trust betray, but press to realms on high. That's Charles Wesley, 1762. He writes those words, a charge to keep I have. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your word, even in the final instructions from an apostle to a young church. Lord, we can see your hand of um, really your Holy Spirit moving us to know how to follow what your word says. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to open our hearts up at this church to your word and the blessing of it and even the blessing of obeying it. Um, to, to be men and women who are uh, faithful to you, to stand strong on your word. But Lord, may we certainly prioritize love to let all that we do, whether it's um, in private, it's with other members of the body, it's with those who do not know you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that our acts, our thoughts would be done in love. We give this to you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.